Welcome to the Positively Alive podcast. I am so glad you made it, and I can't wait to introduce you to our distinguished panel of speakers. This is a space where you will be able to learn more about HIV and AIDS, about the latest medical developments and the tremendous progress that has been made over the last couple of years. We will also elaborate on what it means to live with HIV today and how it is possible to live not only a healthy, but also a happy life. I have carefully selected our interviewees. Over the course of the next weeks and months, you will hear the voices, insights and opinions of policymakers, activists, influencers and some of the world's top medical professionals on the topic of HIV and stigma. There will also be the stories of HIV-positive people and their personal experiences on what living with HIV actually means to them. The main purpose of this podcast is to inform, educate and empower, to get the topic out of the taboo zone, to normalize HIV and to stimulate an open conversation. It is also intended to counter ignorance, prejudice, stigma and discrimination that is all too often affecting the most vulnerable people in our societies. This podcast is also a part of a wider online communication campaign about HIV and stigma. If you want to know more, please join our Facebook group at Positively Alive or visit our website at www.positivelyalive.org. Thank you so much for being here and for tuning in. I really hope you will find our content useful and purposeful. Looking forward to see you inside. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Positively Alive podcast episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Our guest today is Emma Cole. She is an HIV activist from the UK who speaks out publicly as an HIV positive woman in an attempt to break down the misperceptions that many still have about HIV. Emma has lived in, with HIV for 28 years, smashing the 8 to 10 years she had been given to live. Since then, she has undertaken over 1,000 public speaking engagements to a wide variety of audiences, including schools, health service providers, the police, social services, church groups, and further education colleges. Through her public speaking, she offers insight in, into how the virus affects those living with it mentally and physically. The physical tolls are detrimental, as we all knew. However, the mental and emotional issues that follow are often those which go unnoticed. The stigma and unnecessary shame still placed on HIV-positive patients today. In her 26th year of living with HIV, Emma ran all 26 miles of the London Marathon, proving how she can still do anything she puts her mind to. Emma has also featured in a number of magazine and newspaper articles. She has also participated in programs for both national and local radio in support of World AIDS Day. In 2001, Emma was one of three women featured in the critically acclaimed BBC documentary Positive Women, and more recently she was the opening speaker at TEDx Guildford 2018. Emma Cole, thank you so much to join us on the podcast today. You're welcome. You were diagnosed with HIV in 1991. We're told that you were about to live eight to ten years with the disease. You were 22 years old at the time, just graduated, if I'm not mistaken, with your whole life in front of you. Now, could you take us back to the year 1991 and the moment you received the news and what impact this has had on your life? Trying to remember 28 years ago. Well, as I say, I'd gone for a test honestly not believing it would be positive because I know that I only had one incident that was a risk factor. And that was when the condom failed and my then partner told me he was HIV positive. So because we'd always used condoms, I knew the risk was incredibly low. 
Had I actually thought this might be a positive result, I don't think I'd have actually gone for the test. But I went in thinking I'm going to be fine. Well, to be fair, I actually thought they'd made a mistake. I just thought this can't be right because I, at that point, didn't think people like me got HIV. So it was a sharp learning curve. Did you, did you go immediately for the test? No, I had to wait the recommended 12 weeks. So the condom failed. I phoned the helpline, which my GP had recommended. They advised me that it was 12 weeks to enable the antibodies to be developed in the body if infection had taken place. So I just marked 12 weeks ahead and actually went on week 11 because I just assumed I would be fine. Well, it's not that you were feeling sick or anything like that. No, but in hindsight, I look back at my journals and I did have a seroconversion illness. Oh, you did, yeah. I did, but obviously at the time I had no idea about HIV, so I did not link severe flu-like symptoms to seroconversion. I just thought I had a really bad summer cold. So, it, wow. yeah, it didn't, didn't register with me at all. So then you get the news that you're HIV positive, and then what? I mean, how do you cope with that new reality, especially 28 years ago? Well, I coped in the only way I knew best, which was to throw myself into the HIV world because I figured if I'm now in this, I have to embrace it fully. Otherwise, I'm not going to get through it. So I joined support groups. I went to counselling. I started doing public speaking very soon after I was diagnosed. I was volunteering on HIV helplines within a few weeks of being diagnosed which in hindsight would never happen today. But back then, it's like, we're all in this together. We've got to help each other. But was there no sensation for you like, I'm this eight to 10 years diagnosed of, of a lifespan you were going to get, is going to become a reality? Did you not think you were going, going to die? Or Oh, I totally thought I was going to die because A, people in my support groups were dying every week so that you started to get to know people and then they were gone. So that was the reality. And I was so convinced that I ended up buying my own coffin. And it's oh, still, really? still in my living room as a window seat. You know, that was my reality was, I'm going to die. I might as well get prepared. I am a bit of a control freak. So buy the coffin, paint it nice, bright colours. My God. Paint Bruce Springsteen lyrics on either end. Because <laughs> I'm a massive a huge, Bruce fan. Bruce Springsteen fan, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. just a bit. You know that Bruce Springsteen has helped us with, with one of the phrases, say no to HIV stigma. Yes, I understand. <laughs> there is uh, some involvement with Springsteen, which is awesome. Yeah. I mean, your partner, Ian, died of AIDS two years after your diagnosis. That's and then correct. many of the people of, of the support groups that you were attending also lost their battles with yes. HIV. Now, as a person who got his diagnosed 10 years ago, me, it's sometimes very difficult to conceptualize what it was to receive a diagnosis at the time when people are actually dying of the disease. So how do you feel the reality is different back then than, than, than what it is today? Well, I just think that cumulative grief, I feel I got off lightly in some ways because I only went to maybe 15, 20 funerals. I know long-term survivors who can count in hundreds the number of people they lost. And I don't think if you've not experienced that cumulative grief, you will never understand what long-term survivors went through because people are not dying in those numbers now. And also, I remember in the early years, you know, things like CMV, MAI, you don't even hear these things talked about anymore. What is it? Can you explain? Cytomegalovirus, which people with damaged immune systems were getting it, turned people blind. MAI was a brain infection. My partner died ultimately from pneumonia, but he got AIDS-related dementia. 
you don't see these illnesses today. And so, again, if you've not been there in those early years, you're incredibly lucky in some respects because you won't have those horrors to deal with. Every time I got ill in the early years, I'd think, is it the start of X, Y or Z? I don't feel like that. Like a disease caused by, you know... Yeah, yeah. Is is it the beginning of the end? Whereas I think today, once you're on treatment, we're being told you'll live a normal life expectancy. So those diseases of old AIDS-related illnesses, you're just not hearing about if you're fortunate enough to have access to treatment. How are the long-term survivors of people that diagnosed like 20, 25 years ago? In the UK specifically, do you get together often? Do you still try to um, No, personally, to I, I, I have a, a neighbour who is a fellow long-term survivor, older gay man, and our support is to meet once a week for our coffee and just have our space to talk about HIV if we want or just chat about, you know, exhibitions and films and whatever. But I think there's one support group I'm aware of for long-term survivors that meets monthly. But other than that, it would be people just meeting friends or whatever. And I think one of the things that's, that is lacking is a safe space for long-term survivors just to go and meet and say, have a coffee and chat and In the old days, I don't know, I'm terribly old saying this, but, you know, there was things like the Body Positive Centre in London, which had a cafe, which had um, safe. You just go and hang. And if you wanted to talk about HIV, you could. If you just wanted a coffee, read the papers, you could just sit there for hours. And, you know, but it was a safe space where you knew if you went in there, people wouldn't think, oh, why are you here? Sometimes Um, talking and sharing is all what what, what somebody needs. Yeah, I mean, in, in the early years when I sort of reached probably about year 20, that's when I sought out um, online support because I realised that long-term survivors were smaller and smaller in number. And so I used to just get online support, but then people were dying (laughs) or committing suicide, long-term survivors. So I started to withdraw from that and just think, well, I've got this far pretty much on my own. That's how I'll continue. There's a recently conducted survey in Belgium. Actually, last week the, 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 they presented it in the, Bel- in the Flemish parliament. And it stated that long-term survivors are more prone to loneliness, also depression in, in, in Belgium. Is that also the case you feel in the UK? I expect it is. Personally, I, I haven't suffered with depression. Mm-hmm. And I feel incredibly lucky that I've sort of escaped that dark cloud but I think think it probably is, because if you've perhaps been rejected by family, lost partners, you know, I imagine there is quite a lot of loneliness. I'm very fortunate. I made sure that I kept my interests outside HIV going. So massive football fan, music fan. So I, I still have groups of friends who have nothing to do with HIV that I go and hang out with and stuff. Keep living a life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, I've never felt the loneliness. like, And also, to be fair... I I remember a very close friend who's a doctor in Sydney called me ferociously independent. And I figure that's how I've survived because I've known pretty much from day one, I'm the only one who can get me through this. Yes, I can lean on people as and when, but ultimately it's my battle, no one else's. Yeah, wow. Now you had your own close calls with illness. You were hospitalized a couple of times as well in the past. But today you live a healthy and happy life, I can see. You even run your first marathon after 26 years of, uh, after your diagnosis. That's an incredible statement to people living yeah. with HIV, isn't it? Well, that, that was my aim. I stupidly said around year 20, if I ever get to year 26, 
I will run a marathon because I just thought it was a great tagline. 26 years living with HIV, 26 miles. I knew I'd be able oh, well, to, yeah, I knew I'd be able to <laughs> fundraise on that. So it was quite clear that was the only time, the only year I was going to run it. I'd helped set up many years ago a charity that's now called Body and Soul. And they had a charity place for London and they only had one place. And I said, look, this is the only time I want to run it. 26 years, 26 miles. So they gave me their charity place. I did fundraise for them. And yeah, and I did it. And I did it on only four months training. So I was so impressed with myself. I do remember at the start line, the crying to my fiance, thinking I can't make it. And he just told me to go ahead and do it. So I I made sure I did. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. And I I still look at the medal and the photos and kind of go, wow, I still can't quite believe I've never run since. (laughs) But for that moment, I was going to do it. And I did. Now, if you talk about medical developments, or especially over the last couple of years, there's been tremendous progress, especially one of the most important breakthroughs, in my opinion, is you as you, undetectable is untransmittable. How do you feel about being able to see the developments where we are today, of of like being able to take the medicine, get viral suppression and not being able to transmit that virus? I think U equals U is is the biggest breakthrough for those of us living with HIV. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have to think back to those early years. And yes, I had relationships, but I always felt like a bit like a leper, a bit like what if. And that what if was hanging over me a lot, even though I knew it was a lot harder for females to transmit to males. I still had that anxiety. Yeah, the fear of... of, of, Fear of transmission. transmission, And when the U equals U sort of started to come out, I remember there was, when the Swiss statement came, there was a lot of, you know, well, sort of people not really... widely criticised. Widely criticised. So it was, it took some time before the sort of, yeah, we're actually all backing this with the science and people are kind of getting behind it. And for me, that was the turning point of going, right, I can actually relax now. And I say I'm incredibly fortunate. My, I have a fiancé. He is not HIV positive. And what I'm even more lucky is he's, he understands the message. He didn't, doesn't need any explaining. He doesn't need me to say, do you want to come to the doctor and kind of get them to explain it? He's like, no, I get it. You know, as long as you take your pills, I know I'm at no risk. And that's massive. And I have to admit, that's a prior, beautiful message to, prior to him, HIV. my adherence was shocking. But that's U equals U was the thing that made me adhere to my meds, because I know that with a negative partner, I have to stay undetectable. So it's, it's a guarantee I'm going to take my meds. And I've not missed a single dose in the five years we've been together. Well, not a single dose, which, you know, bear in mind, I used to be on maybe 30 percent I took. It's a huge shift just for me, yet let alone, you know, the bigger message. It's a huge incentive to be responsible for taking the medicine. Well, it's, it's, I've got basis, someone else to be concerned about yeah, now. Absolutely. You know, I've, I, at some one point in my life with HIV, I was like, I don't care if I live or die. Yeah. But also remember, I was taking less meds, but staying undetectable. So in my head, I was like, see, I don't need to take meds every day. So I kind of was getting away with it. Well, I wouldn't advocate not taking your meds properly now, but back then I kind of was dicing, I guess. And you were I, still un- undetectable? Uh, I stayed undetectable, undetectable on, on 30%, yeah. Uh, well. And in my head, I was like, well, not everyone in the world with HIV gets access to meds, so why should I take more than I need if I can stay undetectable on less? Yeah. The doctors didn't agree. But this, the, despite the progress and you as you a lot of people still face stigma and discrimination in society, also in the UK. Now, 
As a matter of fact, it seems sometimes that very few things have changed in this in this regard. I was in South Africa a month ago and I interviewed a judge of the Supreme Court, Edwin mm-hmm. Cameron. Yes, I've heard He's him. the only senior public official to openly discuss HIV. He's also a gay man in, in, in Africa. And he called HIV largely an epidemic of silence and shame. Mm-hmm. That's what he said. Now, from your perspective as a long-term survivor and HIV activist, how has the ignorance, prejudice, the stigma and the fear changed in your opinion or hasn't it at all? Well, I'd love to say we've made massive progress on that front and Mm. that anyone with HIV could openly say it and they would have no fear of repercussions. But we're still not at that reality. In my own situation, I made a documentary for the BBC 18 years ago, 2001. Positive Faces. Positive Women, it was called. I remember asking my mum, saying, look, great opportunity to educate more people. I'll get a wider audience for like the message about HIV. What do you think? And my mum said, if you go ahead and make the programme, that's the last you'll ever hear from me. But I really wanted to make the programme because I knew it was going to be important. And I still wanted people to see that HIV was not about specific risk groups because I'd got it, it wrong. It could happen mm. to anyone. So I went ahead and made the programme And I've never heard from my mum ever again in 18 years. Wow. And I know with 100% certainty, if I had any other serious illness, that wouldn't have been my mum's reaction. But her fear of what people in the village would say, what, you know, I don't want to embarrass the family. That's what she was concerned about. So that is still out there. And I I think every time you go public you're taking a risk because you don't know the next person you meet might recognise you and go, oh, AIDS lady or whatever. I remember the day after the TV programme was broadcast, I was on a crowded commuter train and my face was all over the papers in the TV reviews. And I was petrified. I thought, oh God, what anything could happen now. But it, it was done. So I just had to live with the consequences. Sadly, the only really real consequence was my mum. But I still feel it's important if you're able... To, to be public because yeah. personally it was the biggest burden lifted off my shoulders once I took control of who knows then I didn't have to worry about people whispering in the corner I was just like well here I am take me or leave me and I'll deal with you know whatever comes my way and apart from your mother would you say that how have the other re- reactions been because I disclosed my own status recently a month a month and a half ago and I've received hundreds of positive reactions you know a couple of minor negative ones but that's basically yeah. it and even judge cameron told me that back you know so so many years back it's been the best decision of his life has it has this been for you the case as well yes and no i mean i made that conscious choice within a few months of being diagnosed to go public. Because again, I recognised I'd got it wrong about HIV, thinking it was someone else's problem. So for me, the only way I could counter that was to say, it has happened. So be aware of the fact it could happen to anyone. Yes, I think, you know, in those early days, you had to deal with people kind of not wanting to shake your hand. I remember being in a school and a parent was talking to a colleague afterwards saying, I'd love to go and shake her hand after a talk, but I still can't because I'm afraid. Mm. And I just thought, okay, that's what I've got to deal with. I remember not being allowed to go to my goddaughter's parties when she was a child because her mum feared she'd have to tell the other parents. You know, I had all those experiences. Today, if you can come out, you know, largely I think you do get the love and support 
because there's more education out there. The internet, when I was diagnosed, the internet did not exist. There was no YouTube, there was no Google, there was no get your information with a touch of a button. So people only got what they got from the newspapers or TV, which in the 80s and early 90s was horror stories. Mm. So people coming out today have that benefit of so much more accessible information. Okay, there's still wrong information out there as well, but largely you can get correct facts. We didn't have that back then. And of course, we didn't have the science back then. You know, there was no U equals U 28 years ago. So we had to live with the fears. Yeah. And they and were. yet it seems still a big battle to counter that stigma because it's like almost ingrained in the collective yeah. memory of people. Yeah, we, we've got a whole generation sort of, I mean, I'm 50 now. So my generation grew up with the fear messages of the 80s. Those people have then subsequently had children. And if their knowledge hasn't changed from when they were teenagers, exactly. they're passing they it on to their children. On, yeah. And I remember some a teacher saying their brother had died of an AIDS-related illness in South Africa. And he said, it's still the elephant in the room. Nobody talks about it. And that's, you know, in families in this country that happens. There was a recent documentary where the rugby player came out as positive, Gareth Thomas. And the two women that were featured in that were done, you know, disguised because they still live in fear of people finding out. So those fears are real. And as I say, once... The information's out. You can't take it back. So you have to be prepared for any and all consequences. But I I do believe, I mean, I'd like to encourage everybody has his own time span, obviously, to come to grips with the situation. But it's it's, as you say, once it's out, I I feel liberated. It's out there. And that's basically it. And people who are not able to deal with it, well, you know, but at least it's, yeah, exactly. And I, I think I can help just like you to be that little beacon of hope to people living with HIV. But one of the things that that I also want to highlight in this campaign is the whole topic of family and HIV. Mm -hmm. Now, you had this story with your mother, which is very unfortunate. But there's also my family where um, 10 years ago, when I got diagnosed, my mother and father who divorced, they never spoke about HIV for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And because I came public, I disclosed my status, and I've been working on this campaign, we've been able for the first time in 10 years to sit down together with four sisters, two brothers, my dad and my mom, to talk about it. And, you know, it was very emotional, it was very difficult, but it was a place of non-judgment and everybody could express how they felt. And, you know, there was a lot of tension over the years, but now I feel that HIV has really brought us closer together. And that's, in my opinion, an an, an enormous victory. Mm -hmm. My question to you is, do you believe that the situation with your mother or the relationship with your mother will at some point, you know, like come, will she come to grips or what is your message to her if she would be listening to this podcast? (laughs) Sadly, I think after 18 years of silence, I don't expect to ever hear from her again. 2003, I got very sick and I was hospitalized and I was put on oxygen and I was on drips and news got back to my mum that I was really sick and that still didn't prompt her to get in touch. So I kind of figure that was as close as I'd come to death and it still didn't warrant a phone call. I I figure it's not going to change now. And that's for her to deal with. She obviously has her own demons. You know, I'm very fortunate. I have my sisters in my life. I've got a twin sister, a younger sister, my nieces. I have cousins that I'm in touch with. And I've always said, you, you know, you can create an alternative family if your birth family are not giving you the support. And I've been blessed over my years with HIV to have amazing friends and alternative family, if you like, 
earlier this year, sadly, uh, she died, but I had a nun who was my biggest ally from pretty much the first year of my diagnosis. She was there all the way through and she was amazing support and she did amazing work for the HIV community. And as a Catholic nun, that was quite revolutionary at the time. (laughs) (laughs) She she did get her knuckles wrapped by an archbishop for putting posters about condoms up, I remember. Oh, really? But (laughs) she she was determined to sort of make a difference and she did, certainly to my life. So given, given that you were provided a lifespan from eight to 10 years, how did you cope with the 10th anniversary of supposedly your, you know, your disease, which never happened? How, how did you do that? Well, my date of diagnosis is September the 11th, and the 10th anniversary fell on 9-11-2001. Oh, wow. Which, of course, for those who weren't alive at the time, was the day of the American terrorist attacks, Twin Towers, etc., I had actually bought a bottle of champagne to drink that night because I wanted to celebrate my survival. But 9-11 attacks made me realise just like what happened to me, life changes in an instant. And I knew from that moment onwards that A, I was still alive, I was still relatively well. And I said to myself, right, from this day forward, I will live the life I want to live. Because I honestly do think I'd spent eight to 10 years waiting to die hence buying the coffin and getting prepared. Yeah, yeah, of course. And when it didn't happen, I just thought, right, so everything after this is bonus time. And so that's kind of how I see life now. It's each it and every day is a bonus. Because I say, having lost so many people in that first decade who were close to me, you know, I, I still see myself as incredibly lucky to, to be here. So each day is a bonus. And each 9-11, I still celebrate if I can. This yeah. year I happened to be teaching in a school, so I had to save the champagne till I got home. But We also became quite spiritual, didn't you? Yes, I had a, a moment, as they say, not quite the sort of, you know, heaven's opening or anything, but I, I'd always been interested in spiritualism and I'd actually gone up to a stone circle on the Isles of Lewis and Harris up in the Scottish Highlands. I was sat in this stone circle kind of contemplating my life, I guess, And all I can say is it felt like an energy went inside of me. I just sat there and I just thought, well, I don't know what's happening to me, but I felt this energy. And from that moment on, I thought life is going to be very different now. And I I was then, I feel, taken on the path that created Positive Voice and created all all the goodness that has come into my life after HIV. Wow, that's beautiful. I'm amazed by how positive you are. And, uh, you know, I, I consider you really an, an, an incredible role model for people Thank living you. with HIV. I think it's, uh, it's amazing. Now, you are an activist and you've set up an organization called Positive Voice. Well, it's, right? not an, it's, it's just the name I've given myself for, for my work-related activities. Right. So I'm not a charity, but, I, you know, I, I wanted a name to call myself. And Can you explain a little bit what exactly you're doing with that charity? What's, you know, because you're giving talks like you've all across the country, right? Yes, Even well, <laughs> I'd always said if I survived beyond the 10-year mark that I'd originally been given, I would then do what I wanted with my life. So for the first decade, I actually had a job in local government. So I've never not worked through my diagnosis, which I think personally is part of the reason I stayed alive, because I had other things to focus on. So I worked for 10 years. I was still alive, but I had been unwell. So I figured, I don't know what time I've got left, but if it's only going to be a short time, I need to be doing something more. And I'd been involved with early HIV organisations 
but I felt I could do something better just working as for myself because mm-hmm. I'm kind of ferociously independent. So I set up Positive Voice, which was just basically to educate young people in schools around the UK and now Europe. I'm incredibly lucky that I've been doing that for well over 20 years now. And I speak at over 120 schools a year. Wow. So it's become a full-time job. And what is lovely for me is I'm now meeting teachers who remember my talk from when they were pupils, because I've been going into some schools for for over 20 years. And I get booked up to two years in advance to go back into a school. And how, how have the reactions of the audience changed over the years? Well, it's interesting. I'd like to say, well, you know, today's generation of young people know way more than we ever did. But actually, the questions are very similar from even 25 years ago. Can you catch it from toilet seats? You know, how do you feel about not having children? I'm like, well, whoa, whoa, people with HIV can and do have children. You know, oh, how do you feel about not having sex anymore? Whoa, whoa, we have loads of sex, you know. So, so the knowledge is still not up there with people like me who live it on a day-to-day experience. So the education is still really important, particularly because we know there are young people living with HIV in schools now. You know, back in the older days, that then again, it makes me sound old, but, you know, child born with HIV would not have made it to school age in the past. Now they're teenagers, they're off to university, you know, they're living long, happy, healthy lives, but with in fear often of their status becoming known. So if I can make sure I'm educating people so they have current information, should any child ever come out as positive, their reaction won't be to run a mile and have nothing more to do with that child. But we, you know, I remember one very vivid incident where another guest in the school asked what I was talking about. I said, I'm here to speak about HIV to the pupils. And she assumed I was a medic, a doctor, nurse. And I said, oh, no, no, the patient, I'm HIV positive. And she firstly was like mouth wide open and then said, but people like you are evil. You shouldn't be around young people. Really? Yeah. And she accused me of of having a promiscuous lifestyle. Without even knowing you. Without knowing the story. And that the only reason I'd got infected was because God punished people like me. Oh, my God. And I just thought, wow. And she was educating young people that day. So you just think, okay, there's still a lot of work to do. But one of the biggest changes I have seen is I now get young people will come up and disclose a family member living with HIV or okay. someone in so their family progress, yeah. who died. In fact, I remember very vividly a young girl and she'd lost both her grandparents to it. And she came up in, you know, sort of quite emotional saying, but we've never been able to talk about that as a family. And you're the first person I've told. And mm. I just thought that was such a release for her. And I just thought, well, you see, it's not just the person infected. The affected community is there as well. Wider families having to deal with loss, having to deal with other people's sort of reactions. It's still huge. Mm. Is there a specific demographic that you would say is more important to target when it comes to HIV education in the UK? I think the general population as a whole still need educating. You know, I'm from the era that had the massive iceberg campaigns in the 80s, the the tombstones under the water, don't die of ignorance. Yeah, the the massive fear. Yeah. Yeah, and... The government haven't done anything subsequently to address the changes that have been made with respect to HIV. If we could have a global kind of campaign, hopefully positively alive, alive, we'll do the trick, (laughs) you know, just to say, look how far we've come Uh and maybe things will change. But, 
you know, you're still getting people diagnosed late in this country. So there are people who probably, I often say, you know, if you were having unprotected sex in the 90s, A, do you remember it all? And B, would you now, 20 years down the line, think, oh, should I get tested for HIV or STIs? Oh, no, I'm happily married now with my family. But hey, hang on. 20 years ago, you were having a much more kind of... (laughs) More yeah. sex, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. It is my hope that at least with USU undetectable and transmittable, that the collective memory will change, especially amongst the younger generation, right? Because, you know, we can't transmit anymore when we take our medicine. So things, you know, practically uh, change in reality, don't they? Yes. And I mean, it's great that there will be a generation growing up under the U equals U banner, if you like. Yeah. So if that message could get to every young person... Yeah then yes, in time, we may well start to see HIV treated just like any other illness. But I think we're still, you know, a long way to go. And it's not my place to say, everyone, if you've been diagnosed, get up and talk about it, because that's not for me to say. But I think, personally, it was the best decision I ever made. And I do genuinely think it helped keep me alive. Probably, yeah, I believe that as well. Is there any specific dream you have as an HIV advocate? Well, I was originally told I'd only live eight to 10 years, which meant I would have died at 30. I've just turned 50. So in my head, I'm trying to think is 60 possible. So reaching 60, but I I pretty much have achieved everything I wanted. You know, I was incredibly lucky to get to kiss Bruce Springsteen live on stage in Madison Square Garden. So that would have been a dream, but that's been done. So... um, (laughs) Maybe my football team, Queen's Park Rangers, winning the Champions League in my lifetime would be good. Okay. As a final overall message to people living with HIV, what what would you tell them as a long-term survivor and as as a person who's been able to to come to grips with, with that reality and now live a healthy and happy life? I think you have to live your own truth. I have been incredibly lucky. I've worked. I've not suffered hugely with illness. I've had a few spells in hospital in the early years, but in recent years, my health, thanks to antiretrovirals, has been incredibly good. I know my situation can't be replicated for everybody. So I think each and every person diagnosed has to find their own path, but know that you're not doing it alone. There are people who've done it before. There are people who will do it in the future. But if you live your truth the best you can today, and if you have access to meds, make sure you take them, because I think treatment today is is improved so much and it is the thing that changes our lives i personally i remember thinking as long as i go to bed each night with a happy thought and and remember something that's happened in the day that was worthwhile being here for then i'm i'm okay and i still try to live like that because i know there've been some very dark times in this journey where i've not thought i would get through And I have to admit, I thought maybe of ending my life, but I realise as a long-term survivor, if I gave up now, it would be disrespectful to all those who didn't get this far. So I have to fight on. And and you you do find an inner strength you don't know you had. I really do think that's in there for everyone. I fully agree with that. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you, Emma, for coming on this podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you.
So yes, thank you so much, Emma, for coming on this podcast and for passionately sharing with us your amazing journey and about what it means to be living with HIV today. You have beaten all odds and demonstrated why it is so important to normalize HIV and fight the stigma associated with the virus. This has been an amazing conversation and I hope our audience enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you so much, Emma Cole. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and that you learned something. If you haven't done so already, please join our Positively Alive Facebook group specifically set up for this global campaign. It is a place where we raise awareness about HIV and educate people to counter prejudice, taboo and stigma. Whether you are HIV positive or not, our growing community is for everyone interested in learning more about the topic and to share positive and uplifting messages. Check also the Positively Alive YouTube channel where we upload a reduced video version of this podcast interview with the most important messages. I would also love it if you review this podcast and share your thoughts across social media. Let people know that you subscribed to the Positively Alive podcast. The more it gets shared, the more people we will reach, and that is ultimately the intention of this podcast. You can tag me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter, and let me know what you have learned from this. I am so looking forward to share with you our next episode. I also take this opportunity to reiterate and underline the importance of your personal financial contributions to this campaign. Never before in history have we been so close to a vaccine for HIV. Strangely enough, however, we see the national and international donor community pulling back, thinking that everything is in the pocket already. It is not yet in the pocket. We cannot afford a funding crisis right now, not when we are this close to ending the epidemic. A society without HIV where our children can be vaccinated against the virus, how cool would that be? And how much money this would save us as a society? So from a place of humility and love, please be generous with your donations. You can find the donation link in the text area of this podcast, on our Facebook page, on all our other social media channels, and on our website, www.positivelyalive.org. I count on you, and so does the world. Thank you so much.